0: You're listening to a podcast about brain health in diverse America. The goal of this podcast is to inform listeners about the latest research on healthy brain aging and risk factors leading to cognitive impairment and dementia. While the scientific community knows that aging affects brain health of black, Hispanic, and European Americans quite differently. We still don't know the why and the how that this happens. This podcast will closely examine healthy and unhealthy aging in America as we discuss themes especially relevant to Black and Hispanic Americans. I'm Dr. David Johnson, director of the California Alzheimer's Disease Research Center in the East Bay, and one of many scientists working on the Diverse Vascular Cognitive Impairment and Dementia Study. This podcast is a production of the National Institute on Neurological Disorders and Stroke, the grant funded Diverse Vascular Cognitive Impairment and Dementia Study, and the UC Davis School of Medicine. This podcast is produced by Darling New Media Podcast Studios in Sacramento, California. Thank you for joining Brain Health in Diverse America. Today's guest is Dr. Miriam Fornage a professor at the Center for Human Genetics at the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston. She is also the Lawrence and Johanna Favreau Distinguished Professor in Cardiology. Dr. Fornage's research lies in the molecular genetics of complex diseases, emphasizing cerebrovascular disease and stroke. She is a member of the American Society of Human Genetics and the American Heart Association Stroke Council. Dr. Fournage is also the co-principal investigator of the Diverse Vascular Cognitive Impairment and Dementia Study. In this episode of Brain Health in Diverse America, we will talk about the role that genotyping plays in research and the importance of Henrietta Lacks and her contributions to science. First of all, Dr. Fornage. Can you help the listening audience understand exactly what genes are?
1: Yes. Uh, thank you for uh, the introduction and thank you for having me here. So, a genes or genes are a segment of DNA that are essentially providing a blueprint of all the instructions that our cells need in order for them to function. So, if you think of DNA as a code, it re- it is read like a code. And in fact, it's made up of uh, chemical building blocks. uh, That There are four of them. So adenine, thymine, cytosine, and guanine. And so if you abbreviate these uh, by the first letter, it's A-T-C-G. So DNA is basically a code of these four letters. And depending on how these letters are uh, organized, then you have different sequences of genes, and these code then will be translated into these molecules, these proteins that essentially make us us and uh, keep us alive. And so we have uh, each person has a two copies of each gene, one from our mother and one from our father, and uh, those genes are organized in something that we call chromosomes. And that is uh, what is basically the, the support for all the genes in our body.
0: So that sounds really uh, pretty cool. It's basically the roadmap to life, or the map, uh, the the code to life, if you will. Yes, it is. And what's
1: also surprising is that uh, so we all, as humans, we all have the same set of genes. And our genes are 99.9 percent identical from every other human. So, so we, but yet we are very. We look different. We sound different. Uh, we behave differently. And more importantly, we have different susceptibility to disease. And so that's why uh, these genetic variation that we have are important because they essentially. Um, Go, are going to influence how susceptible we will be from getting disease, or how, how we're going to respond to drug treatments, for example. Uh, so even though we are very, very similar, these little variations that we have in each of our genes may are important for uh, our health.
0: So that that's really interesting. That, that starts to um, answer my next question, because what I really wanted to tell the audience today or, or or convey or is why is it that genes are so important to research? Why do we need to measure these things? if they're ninety nine percent the same, um, what's why is it important to have our blood drawn and and all of our DNA and genes sequenced?
1: Yeah, so uh, us geneticists, we study either, individual genes or group of genes, and we, we try to understand how they are involved in health and disease. And why is that important? Is because uh, understanding how these genetic factors influence our risk of disease help us in identifying who among us is more at risk of developing a disease, for example. And so if we have that knowledge, especially if we have it early on, then we can perhaps devise... Uh Treatment we can perhaps devise interventions to help people to maintain their health, prevent their disease. I think everybody is probably familiar with uh, even the newborn screening. so when babies are born, uh, they are screened for genetic diseases, uh, some genetic diseases, not all of them of course of a, a small amount, but uh, it's important, so that's an example of how genetic uh, help us understanding disease and can uh, and knowledge of genetic uh, susceptibility can help us uh, perhaps influence our, how we're going to be treated and how we're going to be um, behaving with regards to our health.
0: So I want to make sure I'm getting this right. So you think that the genes that um, I may have or you have or, or uh, one of the listening audience has might help or or be risk uh, uh, risky, if you will, for um, things like cerebrovascular disease and memory impairment and and cardiovascular heart disease. Um, and, and so our genes are affecting those disease processes directly. Yes, isn't that right? <laughs>
1: Yes, so unlike, for example, when I talked about newborn screening program, those are screened for disease where you have one gene and one mutation, and then you're going to have the disease. So that's fairly simple. It's, uh, you know, you screen for a particular mutation, and then that person who has that mutation will perhaps be very, pretty certain to have the disease. In cerebrovascular disease, that's completely different because we don't have a single mutation responsible for the disease. You'll have many, many genes that are going to be having these uh, variations in them that will influence your risk, but any single one of them will not be sufficient for you to go on and develop the disease. You're going to have to have many mutations in many genes and then you'll have a, a higher risk of, of developing uh, let's say, cerebrovascular disease. And so that's uh, slightly different from these uh, simple diseases uh, where we know when you have that mutation, you're going to have the disease. In, in the type of late onset diseases, so disease of, you know that you get later in life, uh, you have this accumulation of, of uh, these small Effect on your genes that will uh, then accumulate and then increase your risk of having these late life diseases.
0: So, that all sounds really complicated. That if you have many genes that act in combination to make a thing like, you know, a through vascular disease or memory impairment, if you have lots of those genes, then that seems like that's a pretty complex problem. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you go about? Uh, what what are you going to do with these genes data? Like once you get, once we know it, what do we do with it?
1: Yes. So you've you've said the very important point here. Once we know it, and uh, we are not quite there yet. We're still trying to know them. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, and then once we know enough of them, uh, what we can do is we can develop. Uh, We can use this information to develop uh, these risk scores. So essentially, you you mathematically combine the information at all these, you know, the number of mutations that a person carries, for example, and mathematically, you add them up, and then you can, that will tell you what kind of risk you're likely to have and just note that I use the word likely it's not it's not guaranteed, but it's basically you're gonna be we're gonna be predicting uh, with some uncertainty, not with some there will be some uncertainty, but we're gonna try to predict whether or not you'll be likely to have the disease and and on top of that, you know m- even if you have uh, let's say a lot of uh, these mutations. These mutations don't act in a vacuum. You know, they, they're they going to be, your risk is going to be dependent upon how your lifestyle is, what kind of lifestyle you have, um, whether you're healthy otherwise, you exercise, you sleep well, you don't smoke. And so that is going to be dependent, that risk, that genetic risk is going to be heavily dependent upon other non-genetic factors and so that's very important to understand that and that's why i use the word likely we can predict the you know likelihood of you having a disease and that's not certain because that uncertainty is uh, dependent upon other non-genetic risk factors that are very important in determining health uh, especially uh, so, uh, such diseases such as uh, stroke memory impairment heart disease those those are very complex diseases
0: i see so um t- tell me l- let me try to summarize or tell me uh, um how if this is right that in the world where we have a lot of complexity in our genes we're going to use other th- um, measurements of how well we sleep and the type of food that we eat and the exercise that we take and maybe um, information about um, our family or our, our family histories. And we're going to add those things together to create a new way of predicting whether or not, in, in addition to these important genetic factors, um, whether or not we're going to eventually develop a, a, a cardiova- or cerebrovascular disease. Or a memory impairment, and so it's in aggregate the genes are only one part of the puzzle. Is that right?
1: That's that's right. It's basically adding some precision. The genes are really make you in, unique. You know that is something that is ah. unique to you. And so your your medical doctor will know all your clinical information. You know your cholesterol level, your uh, smoking, your your uh, exercise and all these things that that doctor will have that information Uh, but what's unique to you are your genes and so when you add genetic information it it makes you slightly a more precise way of predicting whether or not you have uh gonna have you're gonna have some risk of developing diseases and so that's essentially what we call precision medicine is because it's not you know enough per se to use genetic information to predict disease. It's genetic genetic information in combination to, you know, your usual clinical factors and, and behavioral factors, your lifestyle factors, everything that we know about you. And that makes what we call precision medicine because that's, that is, this information is very unique to you. And so we can tailor interventions that are perhaps unique to you as well. If that wow, sense.
0: that's a really neat idea. Um, yes. And, and it seems very powerful if we can help add precision to make a prediction for a particular person, for a single individual history plus genes. We know something about what what's likely to happen. Um, I think that is um, super duper important for everyone to understand that that's the goal for what we have. But I wonder, can you comment about if I'm a participant in the diverse vascular cognitive impairment and dementia study? Is is this something that I'm going to know? And and at what point is it that you know too much about me? Like, um, is there anonymity or 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 what what safeguards are there for my genetics data if I don't want um, people to know it? And and just talk a little bit about. The importance of the the data process and the, and 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 what how what our safeguards are.
1: Yes, so that's a very important question. So biomedical research in general and genetic research in particular are subject to very strict regulation that protect people's rights uh, and and we are required as researchers to clarify, what are the benefits and the risk to you if you participate in a research study? So that is that that's really something that is necessary and that we have to do. And that is so. There are a number of laws uh, that have been passed that that protect you. The first one that is uh, something called the Common Rule. That's a law that was passed in the 80s that requires that you receive an informed consent. Which is basically when you, if you participate in diverse VCID, you'll be receiving informed consent, which means that you'll get a description of the genetic research or the entire research that we're going to be conducting and the way we're going to be using your genetic information and what are the risks to you and what are the benefits to you. And so, uh, for example, we'll, be, we'll have to explain how we're going to protect your privacy how, uh, under what circumstances, information that we may get on you will be returned to you. We don't necessarily return information, especially if there is uh, what we call non-actionable, if if there is nothing that can be done at the moment uh, to help you with your health. And so all this is going to be explained in, in the informed consent. Uh, and so when, when you participate in any research study, in ours in particular in with CID, you will receive all this information and will explain all this. Um, and there are other laws. So the informed consent is very, very important. Um, you might be interested in, in, in concern about whether your participation in genetic research will lead to you being discriminated against against on the basis of your genetics. And so because of this concern, there has been another law that was passed by Congress in uh, in 2008, 2008, I believe, and that's called the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, or GINA. And GINA basically prohibits uh, health insurance companies, employers, uh, and they, they are prohibited of requesting any information, any genetic information on you, or your relatives, your family members. And there are legal protection for, uh, against discrimination on the basis of genetic information. So that's also a very important law that protects uh, genetic information and how it's used and, and cannot be used against uh, participants. And finally, I think a more recent law was the uh, Affordable Care, Care Act law, which uh prevents health, health insurance companies to deny insurance to people with pre-existing conditions. And so genetic conditions are, you know, some of them are uh are genetic conditions. So that also helps into uh preventing uh health insurance from denying coverage to people with, with pre pre-existing conditions. So some are, those are some laws uh that protect people uh and participants in research um, research studies, uh, in genetic research studies, and so those are examples of laws that help, hopefully, alleviate some of the concerns that they may that may be with regards to participating in in research studies.
0: I think that's really helpful for me to me understanding that more about the regulations. It sounds like. We really have grown a lot in the past 10 to 15 years, not only in the knowledge of what genes are and how they, how we discover um, genes, the reading of the genes and the application and the science, but that the laws are keeping up so that the genetic data that we're going to take from our participants in this study will be safeguarded any abuse.
1: Absolutely. There are very strict laws and, and protocols that and we're very careful with this
0: type of information. Um, on this subject about how some of these regulations came about, uh, I know that many of our parten- uh, participants um, uh, who are black Americans bring up Henrietta Lacks's name a lot and the travails and the story and the inequality uh, um and discrimination against Black families in the early days of the genetics research. And I was wondering if you could just, and it's probably an impossible ask, but uh, explain a little bit about who Henrietta Lacks was and how things have changed since the early 70s when that occurred.
1: Yes, so Henrietta Lacks was a young woman, uh, African-American woman who lived near Baltimore and came to uh, Johns Hopkins Hospital uh, to be treated for uh, what was known afterwards uh, that she had was cervical cancer. And at the time, uh, the doctor who was seeing her took a biopsy, so some cells for, for cervical cancer, and uh, it was, and that she she didn't know about it. Uh, so she, they took they took a biopsy. And uh, passed it on to the lab, and the lab uh, did some what is called the tissue culture. And so they put these cells that that uh, were harvested through the biopsy uh, in culture. And to the surprise of uh, the researchers, Henrietta Lacks' cell did not die, which was uh, for other patients, for example, they had, they were trying to do that, but uh, these cells would live on and and die for, after a few days, but Henrietta-like cells essentially kept reproducing themselves, and and it became they became the first cell line that we call immortalized cell line or immortal cell line, where these cells keep on living uh, in the petri dish, uh, and again that was so that that cell culture was then used for a whole host of Uh, advances in biomedical research. And that was done, again, without Henrietta Lack's consent uh, or the family's consent. So nobody knew about this. These cells were widely shared among researchers across the the globe, and that these cells were, uh, as I said, the... um, the basis of many, many discoveries and many, many uh, advances in biomedical research, vaccine, polio vaccine, for example, uh, even COVID vaccine these days. Uh, So all of these these advances were made possible by uh, these studies that were done in these cells that were immortal cells. And so um, what is uh, really important here is that there was actually no consent from Henrietta Lacks of giving her cells for any kind of research or or biomedical research. And all this was done without her knowing. And her family members um, became aware of uh, the situation in the 70s when they were approached by researcher because um, the researcher wanted to know more about these, these cells that they were Working on, and so they approached the relative of Henrietta Lacks uh, in the 70s, and that's where um, her family members became aware of her cells. Uh, she had died in 1951; uh, her cells still being used in the 70s and without uh, anybody knowing. And so that that is uh, again no no research consent, and so that's what brought up a number of reforms in in, in biomedical research, which is the informed consent I told you about. And so that is a prime example of how this uh, type of uh, uh, event can uh, help into having more safeguards uh, for, for participants
0: in research. Um, that's a fascinating story and also tragic that the laxes weren't Um, aware and, and, um, knowledge, you know, knowing what was going to happen and how much of an, um, of a gift that the Henrietta Lacks gave to science and to all of us. Um, yet feeling that I would guess that the family felt taken advantage of. Yes, Um, indeed. And, and people made money out of these cell lines and, um, how do, uh, are are we going to make any money out of our cell lines
1: so we are not going to be creating cell lines uh, as part of diverse VCID, and certainly um we are not going to be making any money <laughs> out of any of the data or uh, research uh, the tissue that not tissue but the dna that uh, that blood that uh, our participants will will give us uh, there is absolutely no profit for us to be made. And um, the sharing of these data and uh, resource is gonna be very, very uh, regulated. So there won't be any Enrietta situation in diverse BCID.
0: And, and every individual who's participating m- makes the decision whether or not they want to make this donation or not. Is that correct? Absolutely,
1: absolutely. Yeah. So the, every participant will have as I as I mentioned an informed consent and they will provide their consent to give us blood or not uh, give us data or not to participate or not so they will be fully informed uh, in terms of what will be done with their data and their blood sample if they if they choose to give it to us but again there will be any it's, we don't do that for profit and we are not a pharmaceutical company, and therefore we there is no uh, profit to be made on any of this research that we're doing
0: And as uh, supported science by the government, we are trying to create new new science, new diagnostics, new treat and and work towards new treatments, but we are not. Um, a company to make profits, I think, is uh, uh, as you're pointing out. And That's I think correct. That be very clear, uh, because people ask these questions all the time because it's in the news. And... Yes, this is a
1: very important question. Yes, those a very important question, and and uh, yes, so because we we are researcher, we we are researchers working for the federal government, we do not uh, make an, any commercial use of the data or. Uh, blood that people are going to give us, but we will hopefully uh, be helpful into making better diagnosis for vascular cognitive impairment and dementia, and uh, hopefully help advance uh, the research and and the understanding of the disease so that uh, physicians uh, can make better diagnosis and help patients.
0: And I I think it's interesting um, in our conversations here, Dr. Fornage, to point out for the listeners that this is a national team of experts who are looking at these data, these ACTGs, the combinations of these things. And people are working very hard to come up with better diagnostics and better ways to identify cerebrovascular disease, cognitive impairment, memory and thinking problems, dementia. And uh, this is a real team effort. And no one is is in a commercial endeavor. This is a, truly a science-based endeavor, purely yes, and yes. simply.
1: Yes, we are all based at universities uh, at, around the country. And so none of us are part of a company or uh Again, uh, no commercial entity whatsoever, but we are researchers who are deeply, deeply caring about understanding this disease and make progress into its diagnosis and hopefully better interventions for for people so that they do not move on to get a full-blown dementia.
0: This is such a wonderful conversation. I have one more last hard question for you, Dr. Fournage. And that is, tell me, tell the audience, why is it that diversity is such a premium in our study? Why are Black American and Hispanic American genes so important in this study?
1: Yes, very important point, very important questions. So I've told you that even though we are 99.9% identical from one another, uh, we do have these genetic variation, these genes variation that uh, will uh, impact on our susceptibility to disease. And so it, it, it happens to be that some genetic variants are more common in people with certain ancestries. So in people with ancestry from Africa, or people from ancestry from uh, Amerindian, Amerindian ancestry. So some of these variation are more common in some group of participants or some group of people. And so if you do research on, let's say, whites only, uh, you're going to be missing a whole slew of variant in genes that potentially are critical uh, for both our knowledge of disease or our ability to predict disease. So it's very important to have um, diversity so that we look at everybody, every every group of, of people from all ancestry. So that if it happens that some of the variants are more common in some subgroups, then we can have, you know, we can benefit from this information, and and that group may benefit from it. And I'm going to give a, an example that uh, I know well because of uh, my work in cardiovascular disease. So PCSK9 is a gene. It uh, doesn't matter what the name, but it is a gene that is important for in, in, in the cholesterol pathways, so heart disease. Um, so high cholesterol will give, you, will give you heart disease. And so PCSK9 uh, is a gene that was discovered, and it was discovered that African-Americans or people from uh, ancestry from Africa have common variants in that gene that do not exist in whites or very, is very rare in any other population. So by that information and that study of these mutations in people from Western Africa ancestry, we knew we have learned more about these genes, and that has given some new information about heart disease, and that has led to the uh, discovery of a new class of drugs that is used to treat heart disease that benefits everybody. So that's an important uh, example of how uh, genetic, and, genetic research in a group of people from African ancestry has led to a very important discovery in terms of drug for uh, treating heart disease. So Again, if we had not looked at people with African ancestry, we would not have discovered PCSK9 mutations that led on to that very important uh, biomedical research discovery. So that's, what, that's an example of why having diversity is important in our studies, because that helped us uh, finding new things that we would, not look, we would not find if we were only looking at European ancestry, for example.
0: That's a fascinating story, absolutely fascinating. And I would uh, guess that this is being repeated throughout genetics research over and over again, where we discover because of a a subpopulation or just a, a, a population that we've overlooked before, that we find something, a new important piece of the puzzle that helps us solve or treat diseases
1: Absolutely. I think that's just one example. I think I could give you others. Uh, there is some in kidney disease, for example. There are other, other examples of genes that have these mutations that are more common, let's say, in people with African ancestry or other ancestries and lead on to more knowledge about the disease and then lead on to new discoveries with treatment. And so this probably will, you know, whether it will repeat in VCID perhaps. And so that is very important for us to study people of African ancestry, people of Hispanic ancestry, so that we have the opportunity to get into such discoveries and such uh, important, crucial uh, piece of information. And that may be be happening in our study.
0: I think that's an important uh, uh, point to make and that there are early indicators that there are important Uh, uh, differences in genetics that contribute to memory impairment, especially around those cholesterol genes and the APOE4. And we have some ideas right now that this is occurring, but we need to find out and characterize it. And this will be one of many studies that moves us in that direction.
1: Exactly. So APOE4 is an an example that is a a gene that gives risk for uh, dementia which we know about and yet we know that this form of the gene that is contributing to dementia in whites is behaves very differently in other in other ancestries we don't really know exactly why and how and so we're still working on this but certainly that you know an example as to why if we study only one ancestry, let's say European ancestry, we have one view of the disease uh, that may be not quite right for another group of people. And so we really need to have this diversity to understand fully how genes work and how they're connected to disease in all uh, groups of humans.
0: I think that's a wonderful way to end the podcast today with that call to action for all of Americans, all of America, all of the wonderful diverse Americans out there to participate in clinical research and come out and ask questions about diverse VCID and if not this study and others and um, that it's exciting to hear about your broad genetic knowledge and why this is so important to our underrepresented groups in science across the board and also the safeguards that we have in place to not repeat history. So I really thank you um, very much for coming in today and talking with us, Dr. Fournage. It was really enlightening. My
1: pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Thank you for listening to Brain Health in Diverse America. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen to our show by asking your smart speaker to play the Brain Health in Diverse America podcast. And please rate us on your favorite podcast app. Brain Health in Diverse America is brought to you by the NIH grant funded Diverse Vascular Cognitive Impairment and Dementia Study and the UC Davis School of Medicine. To learn more about participating in our nationwide Diverse Vascular Cognitive Impairment and Dementia Study click on the link in the episode description. Any questions or comments, please email us at diversevcid, all one word, at ucdavis.edu. And thanks for listening.